was a man in Mound, whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful, but the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. The story of the beautiful and clever Abigail, and the surly and mean Nabal, is told in the twenty-fifth chapter of the first book of Samuel. It is a story of tragedy for Nabal, and I think for clever Abigail as well. But the cause of their tragedy has less to do, I suspect, with how nice they were, than it does with their misfortune to have a run-in with an outlaw, by the name of David. Yes, right, that David. I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless, and I'm here to do some narrative justice to poor Nabal and Abigail. This is retelling the Bible. Episode 2.7 Nice flock of sheep you got there. Nabal breathed in the fresh spring air and smiled. He looked out over the land and saw that they were coming, from the east, from the west, and from the north. All of his workers were coming together, as he had ordered them to do, to meet just outside the town. Each one led before him the flocks that had been assigned to his care, fine, strong animals with fat bellies and overgrown coats, the sound of their bleating began to fill the entire countryside, and it was like a symphony to the ears of Nabal, the most beautiful sound in the world. When they had all arrived, he knew that there would be over 4,000 of them, 3,000 sheep, and the rest goats. It was the biggest flock anyone had ever owned in this area, and he had built it all up himself from almost nothing. It was shearing time. A time of hard work, yes, with the razors cutting from dawn to dusk, but also a time of celebration and feasting with the men who had worked so hard for him for so long. They were not necessarily the sharpest tools in the shed, his boys. They were uneducated country folk, after all. But they were good lads, and he wanted to treat them well. He had slaughtered several young animals that were even now roasting in the fire pits. He had filled baskets full of fresh-baked loaves. He would make sure that all of his workers were well satisfied once the work was all done. He was in such a good mood that when the scruffy young man came up behind him and cleared his throat, he turned around with an unaccustomed smile on his face but that expression would soon change. 
Ahem, said the newcomer. Mr. Nabal, I presume? Yes, oh, what? You're not one of my workers. What can I do for you? Well, you see, we was just passing through, me and these friends of mine. The man turned and gestured to his nine companions. And we was just noticing how you, like, have these, uh, really nice flocks there. In fact, we've watched how your men took care of them for weeks now. Nabal stiffened. He didn't like where this was going. He'd run into people like this before. I suppose you'd like to offer to look out for my men and my herds while you're in the area? Make sure that nothing happens to them? He asked apprehensively. Well, that's just the thing, see, replied the spokesman. Like I was suggesting, we have actually been here in the area around Carmel for a few weeks now. I don't know if you might have heard of our boss. His name is David. And he brought us here to stay for a while. And when we get here, he says to us, he says, Boys, well, you guys are hanging out in these here parts. I want you to look out for the flocks of this great man, a, a smart cookie named Nabal. Just make sure that nothing happens to his sheeps and his goats. And I suppose that that's what you've been doing, said Nabal dryly. Making sure that nothing happened to my sheep and my goats? Exactly, said the man. Mr. David said you was a smart herder, and you would understand exactly how these things work. And we done exactly that. I just ask your man if anything happened to them over the last couple of weeks. Ask him if even one hair or the fleeces of these lovely animals was even disturbed. Go ahead. Ask him. Oh, I'm quite sure that they'll say exactly that. They'll probably use those very words, replied Nabal. And I suppose that you did all this looking out for my flocks out of the goodness of your hearts? Just like our boss told us to. Mr. David is good that way. Well, do give him my thanks, would you? Nabel turned away, hoping that they might take the hint that the conversation was over. It wasn't. <clears throat> the voice behind him persisted. We was just thinking that maybe you'd like to make your thanks a little more practical, if you know what I mean. I have no idea. It's just that we can't help but notice that you have all this bread and these butchered animals here. It would be a nice gesture that would help us boys remain extra vigilant when we look out for your sheep over the next few weeks if, uh... Nabel took a deep breath. You know, come to think of it, I maybe have heard of your boss. Isn't David the one who used to work for Saul, the king? And didn't something happen there? How is it that so many servants are leaving their masters these days, heading out all on their own? Tell you what, 
why don't I take this bread and this meat that I've prepared for the people who have come here to shear my flocks and this great David of yours, this rebellious servant, can feed his own men if he's so great. You go tell him I said that. The men left, but it was quite clear from how they muttered and looked back over their shoulders and how a few of them took out their weapons and made themselves some fun by running after a few sheep and beating them with the flats of their swords, that the matter was far from over. Word of the disturbing encounter quickly spread throughout the shearing camp and cast a heavy pall over what was supposed to be a joyous festival. Abigail did not much like shearing time. Her husband always insisted that she stay back in the house that they maintained in the city and watch over their stores with a few slaves. Abigail knew that her husband loved her and that part of the reason for this was that he wanted to protect her or at least to protect her virtue for the sake of his own pride. Shearing time among herders was almost as notorious as threshing time was for the farmers. Most of the women who were found on the shearing grounds only went there as working girls. You know, to separate the men from their pay, if you know what I mean. In fact, any woman who was found anywhere in the vicinity was generally treated as a prostitute whether she was or not. So a respectable woman like Abigail had to stay away, and she resented it. Especially as she understood the business and how to turn a profit much better than Nabal did. In fact, if it weren't for her, Nabal would have probably been ruined several times over by now. Whenever he made a stupid business decision, it was always Abigail who managed to fix it. And that was why all of his men had learned long ago to go to her whenever there was anything to worry about. Without saying a word to Nabal himself, the men who were gathering on the shearing grounds had sent a messenger off to Abigail almost as soon as they had seen David's men walking away angrily. They knew very well who these people were and what kind of damage they could do. The messenger had run all the way and was completely out of breath when he arrived. Abigail took one look at the man and she just knew that her husband must have done something so monumentally stupid that they risked losing everything that they had built. Again. The messenger explained to the woman about how the herders had been running into the members of this gang of Davids for some weeks now. They had passed through their camps, often presuming on their hospitality, but never doing anything truly threatening. In fact, they had seemed remarkably restrained. But they had never refrained from letting them know just how much damage they could cause if they were offended or disrespected. They were well-armed and were constantly taking out their weapons and polishing them or sharpening them. The message was pretty clear. No one had seen this David, who had apparently made a big splash in the court of King Saul, a chieftain who ruled a bit further up north. 
before causing a heap of trouble and disappearing. But these ruffians loved to talk up their boss, and they had most of the herders convinced that David was about nine feet tall and as strong as an ox. No one had any doubts of how much trouble they would be in if David decided to make an enemy of them. And now, my lady, your husband has turned away the representatives of David when they came to ask him for some generosity. When David finds out, he is going to be pissed. And everyone is terrified. We're all going to be dead men unless you can do something to save us. So, once again, it seemed, Abigail was going to have to save her husband from himself. Two hundred loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep all slaughtered and dressed, five measures of parched grain, one hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs. Surely, that would be enough. It would have to be enough. Abigail had practically emptied her storehouses. She ordered her servants to load everything on a train of donkeys while she went into town to find out whatever she could about this David and his gang. From what she had heard so far, she had no doubt that he would arm his men and head out to attack the shearers as soon as he heard the news of her husband's refusal. Her only hope was to find out where his lair was and plot a course to intercept the path of his rampage. In the end, it actually wasn't all that hard. A number of merchants in the town had been supplying David's lair for weeks now. The local wine merchant had shipped many skins full, not that he had been paid for any of it yet, of course. In fact, he was starting to suspect that he might never be paid. So he really didn't have any problem sharing whatever he knew about the man and his habits. You know, little lady, he mumbled to her. He had been consoling himself for his losses by dipping a little bit more extensively into his product than usual. You know, little lady... I bet that David is going to like you a lot. You're smart, you're beautiful, and you smell good, too. I think he likes that kind of thing in a woman. Strange man, that David. Abigail didn't answer, but she did smile. The merchant had been very helpful. Abigail pressed her face against the dry sand and waited to hear something, anything, from the bandit chieftain that would tell her that she might just get through this whole ridiculous affair in one piece. Her journey had so far gone according to plan. She had managed to cross paths with David's war party on the second day out of Carmel. She had arranged her baggage train with all the gifts and provisions in front of her while she rode in the rear, so that he would be in a good mood when she finally appeared. Nevertheless, the man was obviously very volatile and unpredictable, so she really did not have any clue 
what was about to happen to her. He stood over her crouched form. Some of his men were sniggering and cracking jokes, but he was quite silent for so long that she eventually dared to raise her head. When she found his eyes, she immediately felt a familiar knot clenched tightly in her stomach. She knew that look, knew it all too well. Abigail had always been considered a beautiful woman. It was the one thing that everyone had always remarked about her. It was supposed to be a good thing, of course, a blessing from Yahweh on her family. But she had experienced it more as a curse than a blessing. Everywhere she went, she got used to the looks that men of every age gave to her. Often enough, the looks would be followed up with harassment or attempts at rape. And if she complained or accused them, they would simply respond by saying that it was all her fault, that she had enticed them and led them astray. Things got better, somewhat, when she was married off to Nabal. Not really because he treated her any different than anyone else, but because he treated anyone even looking at her as a personal attack against him. He used his power and wealth to punish them. So Abigail had gotten used to being able to move about in public in relative safety. But now she was dealing with David, who was clearly a man who would fear nothing that Nabal could do against him. He therefore looked at her with a lust and a desire that was not hidden in any way. It frightened her in a way that she had not been frightened for a long time. She told him that her husband had been a fool to refuse his men, which was true enough, and she spoke to him the flattering words that she knew would please him. As she spoke, she watched his anger subside, but even as it did, she could also see that his lust was rising and it was probably his lust rather than her words that finally convinced him to abandon his attentions, which, he admitted, had been to slaughter her husband and everyone with him. He let her go in peace, but his final look at her convinced her that this incident was far from over. Abigail returned with her men to the shearing grounds. She knew that her husband didn't want her there, but she was so truly furious with him for what he had put her through, and she honestly didn't care anymore. As it turned out, it didn't really matter. After David's men had left, Nabal had been much more shaken with fear and nervousness about what had happened than he had wanted to admit. He had begun drinking far earlier in the afternoon than was customary for him to cover for it, and he had continued to drink steadily for three days. By the time that Abigail arrived, in time for the feast that marked the end of the shearing, Nabal was in the center of the action, but far too gone to even be aware of what was happening. 
Abigail waited until finally Nabal had sobered up somewhat, before she told him everything that she had done. He was furious, which didn't surprise her. But there was something unexpected about how he showed it. As he spoke to her, explaining his view that you could never give bullies like David what they wanted, he got redder and redder in the face. Then suddenly his words became garbled and his speech slurred. She looked up at him sharply. His face looked all wrong. His mouth sagged on one side and his eyes looked unfocused and frightened. He made a sound. She thought it might have been her name, but she couldn't tell for sure. And then he tried to move towards her, but he stumbled and crumpled towards the ground. She got him home to Carmel with the help of the servants. They moved him on a stretcher dragged behind a donkey. They carefully placed him in his bed, and for a little more than a week, Abigail took care of him with unparalleled devotion, trying to persuade him to take small bits of food and tiny sips of wine. It was all to no avail. And when he finally passed, she wept for many days. Yes. He had been a fool in some matters, and she knew that he could be cruel sometimes, both to her and to the servants. But he had been her husband, and had done for her what a husband was supposed to do, protect her from the worst that the men of this world had to offer. Now that he was gone, what protection was left for Abigail? It took some time for the news of Nabal's collapse and death to make its way back to David's camp. But when it did, he did not delay. He sent out his men, the same ten men who had gone out to meet the man on the shearing grounds, to the house in Carmel. Abigail was not surprised. In fact, she would have been surprised if they had not come. When they arrived, her eyes were dry. She was wearing her best clothes and her face was made up. She was so beautiful and fierce that the men, normally not afraid of anything, were shaken. They told her, with more respect in their voices than they had intended, that they had come to do her a great honor, that she was to be the first wife of their boss, David. She stood and bowed low with her face to the ground, proclaiming that she was nothing but a servant. She might be proclaiming her servitude, but she had never looked more like a queen. The men had been ordered to plunder the household, of course, and to bring whatever they found of value as a dowry to their boss. Abigail herself was to retain nothing but five serving girls and the donkey that she would ride. But she did force the men to acknowledge that the house itself and the lands and the herds of Nabal would be passed on to his brother. 
the herders and working men for whom she had truly risked her life would be safe and would continue to earn their livelihoods. Only when she had been assured that this was the case did Abigail go with the men to meet her new husband. There was a feast when they returned to the camp, and then David took her to his bed. It wasn't much of a wedding. The usual trappings were not there, but it would have to do. She wasn't actually his first wife, not strictly speaking. David had already been married to the daughter of King Saul, but when he had broken from his master, that wife had been taken from him and given to another. So, for the moment at least, she was his only wife. Abigail understood very well what kind of man she was dealing with, though, and she knew that his interest in her would hardly last. There would be many other women who would catch David's eye, and some of them would also become wives, a few of whom would probably have more influence than her. But for the moment, she had certain advantages and she fully intended to use them for her own purposes. Abigail was a clever woman after all. One day, soon enough, she would also make a very clever queen. King David is presented in the Bible as one of the greatest heroes in the entire history of Israel. He is strong and successful, a king who is chosen by God and blessed by God. And a lot of this does seem merited. He was a remarkably successful ruler in many ways. But the Bible also doesn't hesitate to admit that he was very flawed. He raped at least one woman and had her husband killed to cover up his crime. He was pretty much a failure as a father, and had sons who rose up in open revolt against him, one of whom slept with all of his concubines. And he seems to have spent many of his early years operating as a bandit and as a mercenary who sold his sword to whoever would buy it and... Yes, he did not hesitate to fight for the traditional enemies of his people. The story of Abigail and Nabal is set during the bandit phase of David's life. The story in the Bible is told in such a way as to present the most sympathetic picture of David possible. This is not all that surprising, as the book of Samuel was undoubtedly produced within the court of some king who was descended from David. It was written, at least in part, as a piece of political propaganda, an art as old as politics. But as much as the story tries to present David as the good guy, who was only trying to look out for Nabal's sheep herders, and was driven to attack Nabal's men because of Nabal's rudeness, it really doesn't do a very good job of covering up the simple truth 
that David was running a protection racket that would have made the Mafia proud, and that he was extorting Nabal and the other landowners like him with a thinly veiled threat of violence. So I wanted to tell the story in a way that represented how other people might have experienced David's rise. To think about some of the people that he might have burned on his way up. I wanted to present in a more sympathetic light poor Nabal, who is savaged in the text from making what some might call a principled, though perhaps unwise, stand. And, of course, I wanted to give Abigail, a true tragic heroine, if ever there was one, her due. I do feel as if I need to acknowledge one other possibility here. What if Nabal didn't just die in some unexplained way? What if David was involved in some sinister way with his death, and this story was just created as a way to quash the rumors that were swirling. I don't know. I I wouldn't put something like that past David based on what we know of him elsewhere. It is an interesting possibility, but somehow I couldn't quite figure out a way to tell that story. If you enjoyed this story, please come back again next week for another take on an ancient biblical story. Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for Retelling the Bible is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Impact Prelude and Impact Andante. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. Send your requests, comments, and questions to at Retelling Bible on Twitter or to our Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes and commentary for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.